Welcome to Stories of Iceland. Iceland is doing better in dealing with the pandemic. Most people seem to have behaved responsibly. On the other hand, our Minister of Finance was caught on the 23rd of December at a much too large gathering at an art gallery where masks were almost nowhere to be seen. This man, Bjarni Benediktsson, has been known for his ability to avoid any comeuppance for his numerous scandals and seems to have done so again. Whether it is his offshore companies doing shady things, his domestic companies doing shady things, or he himself doing shady things on the Ashley Madison dating site... It should be noted that scandals about adulterous politicians are rarely thought to be in the public interest here in Iceland, but his username should have been deemed a reason for resignation. On Ashley Madison, he called himself Ice Hot One. Not cool, Bjarni. Not cool at all. It has been too long since the last episode. The reason is the subject of the episode. It is an obvious story to tell. It would have been easy to do a quick and shallow episode. It would even have been a funnier version. But I wanted to dig a little deeper. So I went through all sorts of sources to try to do it justice. The script ended being about three times longer than a usual episode. I'm not trying to make the episodes longer, it is just a coincidence that there are two long ones in a row. I did consider chopping the episode in two, but decided against it, even though I might have gotten the first part out a little earlier than the whole. I need to clarify that I had started the work before the storming of the US Capitol on January 6th. I had no intention of holding a kind of Icelandic historical mirror to those events. Not at all. I even have paperwork to prove it. As always, if you want to help me focus more of my energy towards this podcast, please support me on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. The most recent supporter is Rosa Basket. I'd like to thank all my supporters, especially Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, Robin Williams, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is extra material there. But this is Stories of Iceland, and this is episode 40, The Dog Days King. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. The binary star Sirius is often called the Dark Star because it is part of the constellation Canis Major. 
the period in which Sirius is prominent in the night sky of the Northern Hemisphere has been called the dog days of summer. This tends to be the warmest part of the year. The name for this time in Icelandic is Hundadagar. It is easy to translate this to English since the word hundur in Icelandic is related to the word hound and dagur is our word for day. There are quite a few superstitions connected to the dog days in Iceland which seems odd since we don't really see stars in the middle of summer. Today most Icelanders know of the dog days because of the king of the dog days. He was not a real king, and his title was given after his reign had ended. Our story begins in Copenhagen, the seat of the Danish king who ruled Iceland. There, Jörgen Jörgensen was born in 1780. As the son of a royal clockmaker, Jörgensen was part of the upper class of Danish society. Though he was considered quite clever, he had an aversion to schools and an ability to get into trouble. So when he was about 15 years old, he got an apprenticeship on a British ship. To start with, there are four things you need to know about young Jörgensen. He was an Anglophile, a sailor, and he craved adventure. These are the first three things. He spent over a decade working on British ships. He went far and wide, but we can't be sure how far he travelled because of the fourth thing you need to know about him. He was an unreliable source for information. Jürgensen wrote extensively about his travels and considered himself an expert in many fields. He managed to publish some of his works, though most of them did not garner critical acclaim. As a writer, he was often criticized for going into tangents, which is fitting since his own story cannot really be told without many tangents. Some of his writings were lost, either completely or sat unread for decades, even for well over a century. We can be sure that he made it all the way to New Zealand, Australia, and most importantly to the island Tasmania, then known as Van Diem's land. There he visited or was involved in the establishment of British settlements. In Hobart he is considered a town founder. Jorgensen worked himself up to the rank of captain. His ships took part in whaling and elephant seal hunting. He even claimed to have sailed all the way to the west coast of South America as a pirate. But this has been deemed unlikely by scholars. When Jorgensen turned up in Britain in 1806, he met with a continent in turmoil. In France, Napoleon had declared himself emperor, and Europe would be at war until his final abdication in 1815. For Jorgensen, it must have been a relief that his country of birth, Denmark, and his adopted homeland, Britain, were not at war. He had also done well for himself in his adventures, not rich, but still financially secure. In August of the same year, Jorgensen decided to return to Denmark to visit his family. He had quite a welcome. He was considered the first Dane to have circumnavigated the earth. 
He devoted most of his time there, as he did so often, to writing. But the currents of war were to change, and with it his circumstances. Though Denmark was a neutral power, the British were concerned for the future. This small country is situated so it could control access to the North Sea and the Baltic Sea. If Denmark were either to fall to Napoleonic forces or ally themselves with the Emperor, Britain's dominance at sea might be challenged. The fear of the Danish fleet in the service of the French led to a drastic course of action. The British bombardment of Copenhagen in August and September of 1807 was considered a stab in the back by the Danes and immoral by many in London. In fact, it is difficult to see it otherwise. The capital of Denmark was devastated by the attack. On land, the Danish forces were quickly overrun. In the end, the Danes were forced to surrender their fleet to Britain. Afterwards, Denmark was left humiliated. The king in Copenhagen had often been called a little king, and now had been treated as such. The country quickly declared war on Britain and was, for now, firmly on the Napoleonic side. For Jorgensen, this meant that, far from being considered a hero, he was viewed as suspicious, even as a traitor. His own loyalties were shaken. Was he a Brit or a Dane? As a young man with seafaring experience, Jürgensen was quickly given the charge of one of the remaining ships of the Danish Navy. The ship was Admiral Yule, and was one of the largest left in the fleet. On the 2nd of March, 1808, Jürgensen engaged in a short battle with HMS Sappho. After about a half an hour, he surrendered his ship. To his critics, this showed him to be a traitor to Denmark. He, and many of those who have studied his actions, claimed that he indeed tried to fight against the superior ship and only surrendered because there was no other choice. Whatever the truth may be, he became persona non grata in Denmark, and in the end never returned to the country of his birth. While Jorgensen was a prisoner of war, he was mostly free in Britain, though he was barred from leaving the country. This led him to indulge in his biggest vice, gambling. While he was engaged in serious and challenging work, he could abstain, but when he was restless, he got his thrills through gambling, and every time he gained money, either by honest work or borrowing it, he spent it quickly. The man needed a challenge. Jorgensen began to hear stories that Iceland had become isolated because of the wars. He was told that lack of shipping meant that people were starving. He decided to help, or, more cynically, cash in on Iceland's needs. He mentioned his half-formed plan to an acquaintance by the name of James Savignac. Savignac, in turn, knew the soap manufacturer Samuel Phelps. Together, the three of them hatched a scheme. They would send a cargo ship to trade goods such as coffee, sugar, tobacco, and rum. In turn, they would get fat such as tallow, which Phelps could use in his soap manufacturing. Jorgensen, broke as he was, talked himself into owning parts of the profits. His knowledge of Iceland, which he had never visited, would be indispensable. 
Well, at least he could talk to the natives in Danish and translate to English. But there were a reason why no one was trading with Iceland. Firstly, only subjects of the Danish kings could sell goods in Iceland. Secondly, Britain was at war with Denmark, and going to Iceland would be seen as trading with the enemy. You can say this about Jorgensen. You can say that he could charm people. He used these charms on the rich and powerful. One of these was Sir Joseph Banks, a wealthy naturalist who had himself been a part of James Cook's first voyage to Australia in 1770. Indeed, Banks is noted as the first European to document the word kangaroo. There is little doubt that Jorgensen and Banks could bond over their shared link to Australia, but Sir Joseph was also interested in another remote part of the world, Iceland. In 1772, soon after returning from the Cook voyage, Banks travelled to places nearer to Britain, the Isle of Wight, the Hebrides, the Orkney Islands, and Iceland, as a part of a scientific expedition. For the rest of his life, Banks was fascinated with Iceland. His interest was not only that of a naturalist, but also with the culture and people. He felt that Icelanders had not been well treated by the Danish and hoped that it would one day come under the protection of Britain. The idea that Iceland would end up under British control is not an absurd idea. The Orkneys and Shetland Islands had been under the Nordic kings of the Kalmar Union until the 15th century. Iceland could be seen as a logical step in northern expansion for Britain. In the late 18th century, there were talks regarding a British takeover of Iceland and the Faroe Islands. The Danes were to receive either an island in the Caribbean, now part of Puerto Rico, or a small duchy on their southern border in exchange. Denmark already had three islands called the Danish West Indies, which at the time were much more profitable than Iceland. On the British side, the cause was championed by a younger son of a Scottish earl named John Cochrane, who hoped that sulphur mines in Iceland would benefit his family's business dealings and might even lead to him becoming the Earl of Iceland or the Baron of Mount Hecla. He claimed correctly that Icelandic fisheries would be a source of great wealth in the future. He also wanted to make Iceland a prison colony, which he thought would be much better than sending prisoners all the way to Australia or Tasmania. Sir Joseph was an important player in these discussions, but might, despite his own agenda, have made the proposal seem less profitable than Cochrane claimed. A contemporary once described John and his brothers as not to be trusted out of sight. They are all mad, romantic money-getting and not truth-telling, and there is not a single exception in any part of the family. When war broke out between Denmark and Britain, John Cochrane had died, so he could not press the issue of Iceland himself. 
In an odd twist of fate, his brother Alexander Cochrane, a rear admiral in the British Navy, was in charge of the invasion and occupation of the Danish West Indies in late 1807. So Banks was certainly mindful of Iceland's future and possible annexation by Britain when he was approached by Jürgensen, who needed help getting a permit to trade with Iceland. Sir Joseph used his influence, and so the voyage was mostly on sound legal footing. Some might think that a prisoner of war prohibited from leaving the country might make Jürgensen think twice about the voyage, but he did not gain his reputation by thinking things over. Phelps stayed in Britain, while Jürgensen and Savignac took charge of the ship Clarence. They decided to set sail as quickly as possible, which meant departing for Iceland in late December 1808. Sailing to Iceland can be dangerous. Doing so in the middle of winter is unwise, to say the least. But they made it. They arrived at Hafnafjörður, near to Reykjavik, on the 12th of January 1809. They were greeted with suspicion and surprise. One cause of suspicion was the flag. Using the British flag at that time would have been dangerous. But since the United States were not involved this time around, their flag was used instead. No one was fooled. People anxious to trade were nowhere to be seen. On the other hand, there were officials and merchants who were not enthusiastic to allow for a violation of trading laws. Savignac and Jorgensen tried honesty by admitting that they were in fact a British expedition. This did nothing to help their situation. Things started to escalate quickly. Savignac started threatening the officials. The Clarence would bombard Hafnafjörður if they were not allowed to trade. This was an empty threat. Instead, the crew of the Clarence boarded and seized the only other trading vessel in port. The officials relented and the Clarence sailed to Reykjavik. Though they could officially trade, there were no customers to be found it is likely that there was an unofficial embargo on trading, but that is not all. The expedition had failed to grasp the importance of time and place. They were at the seat of Danish power in Iceland. Nowhere else were there as many officials in service of the Danish king. There were officials all around the country, but while one or two might have been convinced or bribed to look the other way, there was no chance that the whole establishment could be swayed. The merchants and those looking after the interests of Danish trading companies were also unlikely to keep quiet about such a breach of their rights. As for the choice of time, no one comes to Havnaifurdur or Reykjavik in January or even March or February to sell their sheep fat. People do their trading in summer or fall. So in March the clanners left Reykjavik. Savignac stayed hoping to trade the goods when summer came along. Empty of cargo, they needed to give the ship its needed ballast. And they were forced to pay a ridiculous amount of money for stones, though, as Jürgensen noted, Iceland is mostly made of rock. In Iceland, we have a saying that translates to something like, and this became of that sea voyage. It means that nothing came from hard work. I imagine that this was the feeling aboard the Clarence when they sailed to Britain. 
in the spring of 1809, there was renewed British interest in Iceland. Sir George Mackenzie contacted Sir Joseph Banks, hoping to join forces to convince the government to set their eyes on Iceland. Banks was a willing ally. They would, in fact, keep lobbying for their cause for years, even enlisting the help of yet another Cochrane brother. At the same time, Jorgensen and Phelps were planning a second trading expedition to Iceland. This time, Jorgensen had no financial stake, though he had managed to talk his way out of debt. He was only being employed as an interpreter for now. Both men were aware that there were forces in Britain that wanted Iceland annexed, though it is unlikely they had any plans to expedite the matter. This time, Banks not only helped the expedition get a trading license, but also secured the help of the Navy, which sent the warship HMS Rover to force authorities in Iceland to accept British trade. The warship arrived in Reykjavik before Jorgensen and Phelps on the 11th of June, 1809. The governor of Iceland, Count Trampe, who had just arrived himself, did not want to allow trading with the British. Besides his duty to uphold Danish laws, he had a more selfish reason since his ship, the Orion, had goods that he needed to sell and he did not want the competition. But Commander Francis Knotts of the HMS Rover was quite convincing. When he said that he would sell Reykjavik, it was no idle threat. His ship was very capable of such an act. The governor relented and signed an agreement known as the Knot Convention on the 16th of June. The rover left Reykjavik the next day. On the 21st of June, Jorgensen and Phelps arrived in Reykjavik. Their ship, Margaret and Anne, was filled with goods more carefully selected than those on the Clarence. It also carried passengers such as a protégé of Sir Joseph, a botanist named William Jackson Hooker. Hooker would become the best-known contemporary chronicle of the events that followed. Before they landed, Savignac met the Margaret and Anne on a boat. He informed Jorgensen and Phelps on events and that Count Trampe was not going to abide by the Knot Convention. Reykjavik in summer was quite different than it had been when Jürgensen had visited earlier in the year. Instead of the endless night, there were endless days. The town was also full of visitors willing to trade. There were also more goods for sale. Trading vessels that had been delayed by the wars had arrived with their cargo, but the Margaret and Anne was still barred from trading. Jorgensen, Phelps, and Savignac were stewing with anger. On Sunday, the 25th of June, the trio decided to act. With the help of the ship's captain and a group of sailors, they stormed the governor's house. Armed with swords and guns, they arrested or, depending on your point of view, kidnapped Count Trampe and marched him to a boat which took him aboard Margaret and Anne, where he was deposited in a small cabin. This event did not go unnoticed. The people of Reykjavik were returning from church and saw what occurred. No one tried to intervene. 
For Jürgensen, this was proof that their actions were supported by Icelanders. He even imagined that Icelanders longed to be free from Denmark. The truth is likely more complicated. Ordinary Icelanders might not like the Danish authorities, but there was almost no thought of independence for now. What did interest many was escape from the monopoly of Danish trade. Things had gone a little better in the past few decades, but the Brits did offer the chance of better prices. Regarding Count Trampe himself, he was rather unpopular, so that ordinary people were unlikely to assist him in his hour of need. The key ingredient here was actually the element of surprise. Nobody expected the merchant to just capture the governor and march him off. In light of world affairs, there might also have been an assumption that this act had been sanctioned by the British government. Phelps later claimed that a group of Icelanders had implored him to hoist the British flag. He did indeed have a privateer's license, which made him a sort of legal pirate in the eyes of his government. He could in fact seize Danish ships since they belonged to the enemy. But could he claim a whole island? We don't know exactly what the trio of Phelps, Jorgensen and Savniak hoped to accomplish with their little revolution, excluding the obvious, that is, removing restrictions on trade. Did they have a long-term plan? It doesn't look that way. There was a power vacuum in Reykjavik, and the trio decided to fill it. Jorgensen was chosen. The very next day he issued two proclamations, and although he signed them himself, he did not give himself a title yet. The proclamation said that all Danish authority in Iceland had been lifted. Their text focused on restrictions for Danes in Iceland. All officials were to submit to Jorgensen. There was a threat of violence for those who violated the articles of the proclamations. So there was a stick, but also carrots. Debts to Danish merchants were to be forgiven. Taxes and corn prices were to be lowered. There was also a call for a representative parliament, a return of the Althingi, which had for centuries become less relevant until being disbanded in the year 1800. Jorgensen also called for a better health care and education system. There was also a demand to surrender all weapons, and that process began the same day in Reykjavik and Hapnafjörður. They did indeed find weapons, but most of them were of little value. As you might imagine, there was much for the common people to get excited about. But it is difficult to judge how seriously Icelanders took these proclamations. The lower orders of society could just go with the flow, but many of the king's officials were Icelandic. They had to make a choice. Should they ignore this man? Resign? Resist? For his part, Jorgensen decided to ensure that the officials kept drawing salaries. He even decided to give a pay raise to priests, who were in fact the most numerous of the public servants, and those that ordinary people were most likely to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Two officials, the so-called Stephenson brothers, 
one a lieutenant governor for the West and the other a judge, were quite happy to use the opportunity for personal gain, while at the same time trying to make it look as if they were being forced into action by Jorgensen. They had been competing for power with Count Trampe and were happy to see him humiliated. The lieutenant governor for the south was less impressed by Jurgensen, and wrote a harsh letter admonishing him, though it should be noted that even though many copies exist, there is no evidence that it ever came across the interloper's desk. When he first saw Reykjavik, the botanist hooker noticed a white stone building, more imposing than most, and assumed it to be the seat of government. In fact, it was the prison. Jürgensen decided to free the convicts and then use them to form the basis of an army. He also found barracks for them, the very prison in which they had been held. The building still stands in Reykjavik, and by a quirk of history it is now the seat of government. It was the 28th of June that Jürgensen established his army. It was not a large one. At first there were six, but later expanded to eight. He even managed to find them green uniforms, though I have yet to find any information on where those had been located. They were given horses and set to patrol the neighboring countryside, while also impounding weapons. This was not the only military precaution made. Since Iceland had been ill-prepared for their takeover, Phelps set to work ensuring that they could fend off an attack from sea. He tried to build a fort of sorts, armed with six old cannons that were rather unlikely to survive much use. Establishing a little army was not the only first that Jürgensen accomplished in Iceland. He designed our first flag, and had it flown in Reykjavik. It was described as three stockfishes in the upper corner of a blue field. His flag did not survive, but there have been many recreations of it. Most people seem to adapt to Jürgensen's rule. For those outside the southwest corner of the island, nothing at all changed for the time being. As a favorite anecdote of mine goes, though I must stress that I have never confirmed it, a farmer in the Brittany region of France had never heard of Napoleon while the emperor ruled. If Jürgensen could be said to have engineered his own downfall, it was in a proclamation on the 11th of July. The articles themselves were interesting, even revolutionary, but his most notorious offence was that he referred to himself in the royal we. He then signed the proclamation as Lord Protector of Iceland on sea and land. It should be noted that he included a provision that he would resign his office on the 1st of July, 1810, after Icelanders had elected their representatives for Parliament. He might even have meant it. If we want to understand what Jürgensen meant when he declared himself protector, the obvious parallel is Oliver Cromwell, who, after having the British king deposed and executed, used a similar title. But the use of the royal we in the proclamation defined Jürgensen's legacy. It was seen as his way of calling himself a king without using the word.
As Lord Protector, Jorgensen saw the need to tour his dominion. In the company of five of his soldiers, he travelled for two weeks, going all the way to the western fjords and Akureyri. He was not always warmly received, sometimes even with open hostility. The lieutenant governor for the north refused to give Jorgensen access to public funds and was rewarded with threats of arson. In the western fjords, he threatened to shoot an angry farmer, drawing his gun and pointing at him. The farmer did not flinch and dared Jorgensen to shoot. Luckily, these confrontations were resolved without bloodshed. During his time in Iceland, the protector was romantically involved with a 19-year-old Icelandic woman named Gudrun Einarsdóttir Jónsson. We do not know exactly how far their relationship went. Despite his many flaws, womanizing does not seem to be in Jürgensen's character, so I do assume that his intentions were, in the parlance fitting the time, honorable. Some claim that she would have been his queen if events had turned out in his favor. But there are so many tall tales about Jürgensen that we cannot be sure. One of the most enduring images of Jürgensen's reign is his own creation. The scene in the picture is a dance in Reykjavik. There are people in their finest clothes dancing in a hall. Two musicians in the corner provide accompaniment with fiddle and drum. But the main focus is on a woman whose wig has been hooked on the chandelier. The woman in question was a Mrs. Vancouver, a passenger aboard the Margaret and Anne, who, Jorgensen, felt had wronged him as the revolution came to a close. The picture is his somewhat petty revenge. The Lord Protector had begun his reign just before the start of the dark days of summer. As they drew to a close, his power was to be challenged. On the 14th of August, the British warship, the HMS Talbot, closed in Reykjavik. The captain, Alexander Jones, could not help but notice Jorgensen's flag. It was he who would determine the future of this northern island. The captain was soon inundated with people seeking to influence his actions. Through Mrs. and Mrs. Vancouver, Count Trampe, sent him a letter listing his various complaints against Jorgensen. The Stevenson brothers contacted him and gave their view of events, which coincidentally showed them in a favorable light. After his investigation, Captain Jones was clear that Phelps, who, though not the figurehead of the government, was in charge of the trading expedition and had far exceeded his permits. Of the various fences of the government he set up, declaring Iceland independent and at peace with every country was deemed most serious. Giving the governorship of Iceland to a Danish man while Britain was at war with Denmark was also a grave wrongdoing. Of the protector himself, Jones was quite sympathetic, writing, Poor Jorgensen was a good-natured madman. Nobody's enemy but his own, and in this business the greatest sufferer of all. 
On the other hand, he felt that Samniak was the instigator of the whole affair. This view was shared by both Count Trampe and the botanist Hooker, who himself had not been enticed by balls and festivities, and instead spent his time in diligent pursuit of science. On the 22nd of August, Captain Jones, Samuel Phelps, and the Stevenson brothers signed an agreement ending the reign of Jorgensen and declaring all his decrees null and void. Despite this, Samuel Phelps had done quite well for himself. He had used Jorgensen's reign to line his pockets. Many felt that he had indeed been guilty of outright theft. When the Margaret and Anne sailed from Reykjavik on the 25th of August, he had not only a cargo of Icelandic goods, but he had also confiscated the ship Orion, which belonged to the long-suffering Count Trampe. This was an act deemed legal in times of war. On board the Margaret and Anne were Phelps Hooker, the Vancouver's, and three Danish prisoners. One of the Danes was Count Trampe himself, who would end up being a willing passenger since he wanted to reach Britain in the hopes of getting compensations for the wrongs he felt had been committed against him. On board the Orion was the former protector. The voyage proved eventful. The ships took different routes and the Orion fell behind. On the second day, those aboard the Margaret and Anne noticed the smell of smoke. The goods on board had caught fire. How the fire started is up for debate. Some claim that the Danish prisoners started it deliberately, but this seems unlikely if they were aware that the Orion had fallen behind. In fact, it looks suicidal. The fire spread out of control, but then the Orion appeared. This was to be Jorgensen's finest hour. He was in control. He went aboard the Margaret Nan and started evacuating the passengers over to the Orion. He fought the fire heroically, even saving the animals aboard, sheep, cats, and dogs. But he could not save the ship. At one point it is said that the cannons aboard the Margaret Nan fired because of the heat, almost damaging the Orion. Jorgensen returned to the Orion. As the Margaret and Anne burned, so disappeared any hope that Phelps would make a profit from the venture. For the botanist hooker, it was the loss of specimens gathered that hurt the most, though he was mostly happy to be alive and grateful to Jorgensen for the rescue. Being dangerously overloaded, the Orion had to return to Reykjavik. Most of the passengers went aboard the HMS Talbot, while Jorgensen and Phelps sailed to Britain on the Orion, carrying with them an officer from the Talbot. According to Jorgensen, the trip brought out tensions in the relationship between him and Phelps, facilitated by the latter's drinking. The naval officer earned his keep by stepping between the two and keeping a fight from becoming violent. When the ships arrived in Britain, a legal battle was fought on many fronts. For Jorgensen, there was a question of what exactly he would be charged with. As a Danish citizen, his revolution had had little to do with British authorities. But it was clear that by leaving the country, he had violated the terms which allowed him to walk free. 
Jorgensen was in prison at various locations. The worst of it was aboard the prison ship Bahama. The fact that aboard were other Danish prisoners did nothing to boost his spirits. When news of his Icelandic adventure reached his homeland, he was condemned and threatened with prosecution and even execution should he return. So his fellow Danes aboard the Bahama made his day even worse. Amazingly, Jorgensen managed to use his time on the Bahama to write. He sent letters near and far, but he had fewer and fewer friends. Sir Joseph Banks had turned his back on him after receiving a damning report of the events from Count Trampe. His family was still loyal to him, but above everyone else it was Hooker who stood by him. Even so, Jorgensen and Hooker had a bit of a conflict of interest. The botanist was writing a book which would be published as Journal of a Tour in Iceland and documented his scientific work with an appendix on the revolution. The former protector was writing his own account of his reign, but was dissuaded from publishing it by Hooker. Though Jorgensen was eventually released again, his legal troubles were not behind him and would in fact be ongoing for most of his years in Britain. He went into a spiral of gambling and borrowing money, which proved to be too much for many of his supporters. During this time he became reacquainted with people he had left in Iceland. James Savignac returned to Britain in 1812, and with him was Guðrún Einarsdóttir Jónsson, Jörgensen's own romantic partner during his reign. Guðrún had worked for Savignac for some time, and evidently thought they were getting married. But arriving in Britain, she learned that Savignac had a wife already, and children as well. She was stuck in a foreign country with little prospects. Jörgensen rose to occasion. While his letter writings were usually on his own behalf, often hoping to borrow money or get help with his legal matters, he now set out to help Gudrun with only a few selfish pleas on the way. He turned to Sir Joseph, and while the naturalist had a low opinion of Jürgensen, he did reach out to help this vulnerable Icelander. Gudrun spent about two years in Britain, making ends meet with support from banks and other well-wishers. She even tried to learn the trade of umbrella-making, but little became of that venture. With help from her supporters and Jorgensen, she managed to return to Iceland. She married, had children, but in the end she left the country again. The last we hear of her is that she is down on her luck in Copenhagen. As the Napoleonic Wars came to a close, Jürgensen found himself a new line of work as a British spy. He lost his first payment gambling in London and had to work for his passage to the continent. It was June 1815 and his first destination was Waterloo. There he claimed to have witnessed Napoleon's final battle in person. While doubts can be cast on this assertion, he was certainly a witness to the grisly aftermath. The British resupplied Jürgensen with money, but it did not last. When he arrived in Paris, he admired the French casinos, not from afar, but rather as an active gambler. After losing his shirt, 
literally, he was forced to practice his spycraft on foot. He walked about 400 kilometers in a month, crossing France while trying to collect valuable information. According to him, this made him even more effective. Arriving in Saarbrücken in early 1816 with no money, Jorgensen spied one of his father's clock in a window and introduced himself to the owner, a Scottish man named Alexander Fraser, who promptly became his benefactor. The spy also managed to contact British officials who paid him for his work. He spent some time with Fraser and even came engaged to his daughter in a brief moment of passion, though he did not follow through with his interest. Jorgensen kept traveling around Europe, but he never visited Denmark, despite his father having secured him a pardon from the king. Jorgensen returned to Britain in 1817. He then published an account of his travels, which sold more copies than most of his works, though it was not much loved by literary critics. Jorgensen spent the next year spiraling as he had before. His life was a vicious circle of gambling, borrowing, debt, and prison. Though he never lost his charm completely, it had certainly worn thin. He even managed to lose his only remaining friend, the botanist Hooker, who finally had enough of his erstwhile saviors begging and pleading. But Jorgensen kept writing and he met or made contact with various noteworthy people of the age, including prison reformer Elizabeth Fry and Robert Peel, the namesake of the Bobbies, that is, the British policemen. But Jorgensen's days in Britain came to an end in 1825. He had been sentenced to transportation, which meant that he was to spend the rest of his life in a prison colony on the other side of the world. He left the country on the 6th of December. The destination was marvelously appropriate, the island of Tasmania, where Jorgensen was still remembered. Tasmania was considered a better place for European convicts than the mainland of Australia because of a more forgiving climate. In Tasmania, Jorgensen managed to avoid the backbreaking labor expected of most convicts. Instead, he became a clerk, where he quickly proved himself by exposing a group that was forging banknotes. Jorgensen was rewarded with what he really wanted, a new job that suited him better than pushing paper or mindless labor. He was to lead a group of explorers to the uncharted areas of Tasmania. There is much to be said about his work as an explorer, but this is not the venue for that. His reports and writings on what he found are among the most detailed about the interior of Tasmania for up to a hundred years, though they weren't always believed at first. He also left us an important advice. Don't eat wombats unless you're starving. In early 1828, Jorgensen had built a good reputation and was working towards the right of return with some success. At this time, he had also acquired the swords, which forms a large part of his local legend. His next assignment was as a police officer, which seems an odd job for a convict. It was as a police officer that Jorgensen met the woman he would marry. 
She was Nora Corbett, a 23-year-old from County Cork in Ireland. A fact that pleases me personally as a former resident of Cork. Nora had been in league with a gang of sheep rustlers. She agreed to help root out the gang, and Jurgensen was there to protect her from her former partners in crime. For most of his life, Jurgensen can be seen as a lovable rogue, a scoundrel maybe, but his work as a police officer made him an accomplice in the darkest chapter of Tasmanian history. When Europeans arrived on the island, there was a population of Aborigines. We do not know how many. The number often given is around two to seven thousand inhabitants. We know that their numbers rapidly declined, a mixture of disease and conflicts with the colonists. In many cases, it, it was outright murder, but those were not well documented. When Jorgensen started working as a police officer, the numbers of Aborigines might have been in the hundreds. The increase in the number of colonists meant there were more confrontations and the police were often tasked with dealing with attacks by the Aborigines. At the time, there was considerable debate on the issue. We are often told that we can't judge the past with the eyes of the present, but even back then there were numerous people who recognized that the Aborigines were in fact just defending what, what had been theirs and they had a right to live. There's nothing to point that Jürgensen was harsh in his dealings with the Aborigines. In fact, when police showed up where an attack had taken place, the Aborigines had usually vanished. But in 1830, Jürgensen took a leading role in what was called the Black Line. It is an infamous venture. The authorities decided to root out the Aborigines and transport them to an uninhabited planet. About 2,200 men were organized to form a sort of moving line across the island. They were meant to capture any Aborigines left. Today we would call this event ethnic cleansing, even genocide. In fact, the Black Lie captured very few Aborigines. Most slipped by. But those remaining had lost hope, and soon they agreed to be transported to Flinders Island, a very, a very unwelcoming place. Most of them died, some returned later, but by the end of the century, the indigenous population had been wiped out. There were no people left whose parents had both been Tasmanian Aborigines. Jorgensen kept working on and off as a police officer, and we can see that his hope was that this work would lead him to earn a pardon so he might return to Europe one day. On January 25th, 1831, he married his Irish love. Their marriage was not a happy one. Nora was an alcoholic, and by this time Jorgensen had his own drinking problems. They fought, and it is said that Nora was often violent towards her husband. He tried to get her help, but met with little understanding. They also had frequent run-ins with the law. In July 1833, the couple moved to the small town of Ross, Jorgensen had been hired as a division constable in name, but was in fact a spy. For years there had been an effort to build a bridge there, but even with convict labor and uh, large amounts of money being spent, little progress was made. He failed as a spy, but the eventual bridge would form a part of his legacy. 
After Jürgensen and Nora had moved on, the stone bridge was completed. It still exists today, and in the stone you can find portraits of King Jürgen and Queen Nora. The last few years were not kind to Jürgensen and his wife. He did manage to earn some money as a writer, often on behalf of convicts. He even earned himself the right to return from his transport. But it was not to be. When Nora died on the 17th of July, 1840, the cause of death was listed as visitation of God. That means that no real cause of death could be found. The most likely reason is, of course, that her body had failed after years of alcohol abuse. Jorgensen was still trapped in Tasmania. The following August included a bright spot of sorts. He met with naturalist Joseph Dalton Hooker, the son of his old friend the botanist. Though Jorgensen was happy to meet Hooker, who reminded him so much of his father, the younger man was not impressed. In fact, the naturalist would in later years go out of his way to malign Jorgensen, likely in the knowledge of how much his father had been grieved by their dealings. While life with Nora had been hard, it doesn't seem far-fetched that her loss weighed on him. On the 20th of January 1841, Jorgensen passed away at 61 years of age. He was buried along with his wife in a Catholic cemetery, though his religious beliefs are hard to pin down and were ever-changing. He was never a Catholic himself, but he would likely not have been unhappy to be by his wife's side. Unfortunately, their grave is no longer accessible. The cemetery fell into decay and the college was built there instead. Some skeletons were found, but there is no telling if one of them is in fact the former Lord Protector of Iceland or his Irish Queen. In Iceland, Jorgensen has a complicated legacy. We have translated his first name and call him Jörndr. We also call him the Dog Days King, or Hundadaga Konungur. For some time afterwards, Icelandic writers seemed mostly embarrassed by Jürgensen. This might have something to do with the fact that those who did the writing were often directly related to, or somehow connected with, the people who did nothing to resist his revolution. As Iceland became more oriented towards independence, we saw a different Jürgensen a hero trying to reawaken the Icelandic spirit. This man was ahead of his time. Iceland should indeed be free from Denmark. Then there are those who are fascinated by what kind of country Jürgensen was trying to create. His proclamations have been studied and often viewed favorably. In this light, he is seen as an enlightened republican we can even claim that for about two months in the summer of 1809, Iceland was in fact an independent republic in the making. But history teaches us that people promising freedom do not always deliver it. And many a tyrant has declared that his rule will end when democracy is ready. Oftentimes, Jürgensen is written off as a joke. 
His takeover of Iceland is, in fact, a ridiculous episode of history. Icelanders played along when it suited them and then discarded the protector. But after careful consideration, it is clear that his revolution could have turned out quite different. There are so many what-ifs. If instead of Captain Jones on HMS Talbot putting an end to Jürgensen's reign, one of the Cochrane family might have been in charge of the ship and decided to at least occupy Iceland while Britain was at war with Denmark. But after Captain Jones's intervention, Britain issued a proclamation saying that Iceland and the Faroe Islands were under their protection for the duration of the war. The phrase used was stranger friends. We know that Britain returned the Danish West Indies at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. At the same time, though, Norway was transferred from Denmark to Sweden when the victors were dividing their spoils. Is it a stretch to imagine Iceland and the Faroe Islands being included in this exchange? Iceland had originally been under Norwegian rule before the formation of the Kalmar Union, which led to Danish rule. And, as I have pointed out, there were always those who wanted Iceland annexed by Britain itself. A few butterflies flapping their wings really hard might have opened a different trouser leg of history. It seems that every year in Iceland, Jürgensen's story is told or retold. There are many books about him, fiction and non-fiction, that have been plans for a live-action movie or TV series. He is also a frequent subject for documentarians, but the most famous work about him in Icelandic might be the comedic musical written in the late 60s called You Remember Jürgen? The songs of the musical are mostly from Ireland and England, with lyrics about a very fictionalized version of Jürgensen's life. It is easy to find these songs on streaming platforms. It even led to the on-stage band becoming a successful folk group called Thruopatli, or Three on a Platform. Jürgensen's life and career are ripe for any and all to perform a postmortem psychological diagnosis. I have avoided trying to do so myself. I think those are rarely useful, even when done by experts. For me, the man is still a mystery, and the more I read, the less sure I am. I'll leave with a quotation from Jürgensen, not because it's poignant, but because I find it quite funny. Though he had spoken English from an early age, he never got rid of his accent. Since I've heard many Danish people speaking English, I can imagine what he sounded like. Not the almost sing-song accent that you might associate with Scandinavia, but rather a potato-in-the-throat kind of sound. It is even more amusing for Icelanders who study Danish in school and could in fact apply Jürgensen words to his own mother tongue. Late in life he was tired of people mocking his accent and said... I am not responsible because the English have taken it into their heads to pronounce some of the letters of the alphabet in a manner different from all other European nations. That is it for today. 
please visit storiesoficeland.com for links to materials and a selection of sources. Thanks to Vaidavon Helstare, Emily Cooper, Julie Fisher, Emily Harper, Evan Williams, Jon Helgason, Christopher Bath, Austin Ewell, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Robin Williams, Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. I am Ole Gnestis Oleason, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 40, The Dog Days King. Thank you.